Good evening. So nice to see you, good folks. You got to unmute. We're going to talk here. We, we got to jump right in. We're going to spend an hour here talking about <laughs> testing, vaccines, all of the fun, all of the things that are scaring us in the house, sir. Um, we we want to talk a bit. I'm excited to have you all with us today. We've got Dr. Jennifer Edwards Johnson, Michigan State University, Dr. Deborah Ford Holden from Michigan State University, Dr. Amari Young, OBGYN, and Pastor Daniel Moore with us today. Hey, everyone. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. Going to give them a moment to share. To share. I'm share, driving. Share. I'm driving. So just are you that. driving or riding? I'm riding. Okay. Okay. <laughs> as long as you're riding, we're cool. All right. So let's let's start this way. Right in this moment, anyone who knows folks who have questions about COVID testing or vaccines, share, share, share so that we can get some questions moving. But before we jump into that, just wanna do a bit of introduction from each of you. We can start with Dr. Jennifer Edwards Johnson, then move to Dr. Deborah Furhold and move to Omar, Dr. Omari Young, and then close out with Dr. Daniel Moore. All right. I'm Jennifer Edwards Johnson, family physician and community assistant dean of our Flint campus of MSU College of Human Medicine. Awesome. I'm Dr. Deborah Furholden. I'm an epidemiologist, uh, director of public health at Michigan State University. Omari Young. I'm an obstetrician and gynecologist at Hurley Medical Center. I'm also faculty at uh, Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Great. Dr. Daniel Moore, pastor of Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church here in Flint, and we're hosting one of three faith uh, clinics for the vaccine. All right. My name is Isaiah Oliver, our service president and CEO at the Community Foundation of Greater Flint, which means for the rest of the hour, I am your sincerely ignorant cousin that will ask all of the crazy questions that you might be struggling with. You might not want to put in the chat, but I'm going to ask and I'm going to start all right now. We're at home. I miss people. I miss I haven't seen my mom, but one time over Christmas and it was scary in the last year and a half. And people are telling me, got to get the vaccine. You got to stay home. You got to mask up. You got to make sure that you're in places. You got proper ventilation. You can't really go out to eat. My favorite two rest. My favorite restaurant opened during COVID, Prime 810. I want to spend time. I want to support Ray Tyler. I can't do it too much, right? A new bookstore opened downtown. It opened during COVID. I can't go as much as I'd like to. Why? Why are the numbers spiking right now? Why are we closed in the house? Why are there folks in the out county areas kind of spending time with one another, socializing? What's happening in the moment? What's causing the spikes? And what are your recommendations for how we move past it? Dr. Jennifer Edwards Johnson, we're going to start with you and then we're going to go to Dr. Deborah Furholden, who is our, our what is your role? What are you, um, public health, public health, public You're a med, public health expert. Yeah, let's, yeah. Start with doc, let's start with Dr. Deborah Furholden, the public health expert. Yeah, so there's a couple of things that are happening. Seven weeks ago, our community positivity rate, so of the people who were getting tested for COVID, the percentage of those people who were testing positive was 2.9%. We were celebrating. 2.9% of the people who were getting tested were COVID positive. Where we are as of Friday, 20.9% of all people who are being tested are coming back positive. That doesn't mean that 20% of people in our community are positive. What it means is we've kept testing the same, we've kept testing very high, and then the percentage of people who are testing positive is increasing. It's our best measure for what's happening in the community with the spread of this virus. So why seven weeks ago were we at 2.9% and now we're at 20.9%? A lot of things all happened at the same time. One, we reopened the city on February 1st. We reopened the city, and it takes about two to three weeks from when something happens to see the impact of it. So I, like you, Isaiah, Prime 810, one of my favorite spots, I went to Prime 810 the day that we reopened. What I've noticed over time is people have gotten more lax on these protocols. People aren't honoring them. People aren't honoring the occupancy stuff. People aren't masking up. We reopened. We sent kids back to school. We re-engaged sports. We started having large gatherings again. We got variants introduced in Michigan and Michigan has the highest number of variants. All of these things happened at the same time 
And then we got this dose of hope in the community called the vaccine. And I think it's actually giving people the misconception that they're good, that they can get back to business as usual. I think when you put all of that together, coupled with the fact that Michigan is just very transparent in our reporting, I actually believe that a lot of the other states are a lot higher than their reporting. And there's good evidence of that. There's been a lot of underreporting from states during this COVID pandemic. Michigan has been one of the best actors in the landscape and transparently reporting on our cases and also disparities in cases. So the reality of it is that people thought it was a hoax or anything like that. It's not. Cases are surging. We're almost back to the highest peaks where we were, you know, back last November, December. We're almost there again. Dr. Jennifer Edwards Johnson, what are you seeing in the hospitals? I know you said you did a couple of rotations last week. Yeah, um, I'm seeing exactly that in the hospital, right? I'm seeing more cases. I'm seeing half of our service look like, you know, COVID has COVID patients. Most importantly, we're seeing younger patients. We're seeing 30, 40 year old patients in the hospital with COVID. Um, and I think those points that we talked about just now are important. They're definitely contributors to why we're seeing this spike. I think the piece about Michigan being a really, really transparent is important. We were one of the first states to shut down and do it really robustly, which meant that our first population of people didn't get COVID. We had a lot of people didn't, who didn't get COVID, which means that now we have a lot of people who can get COVID and who are getting COVID. And so that's part of why we're seeing this spike now is that they didn't get it then, We've relaxed our protocols a little bit. We haven't, but people have, right? People have gotten tired. They're not masking as much. Schools are back in session. Parents are taking their kids to soccer practice and sporting events. And those parents are, are testing positive. Hold on, this one is new for me, Dr. EJ. Um, we did really well at first, right? And so it takes me back to our early conversations about herd immunity. And I just want right. you to talk a little bit about herd immunity because obviously, that wasn't something we were building while we were being really safe. And there okay. were the, there were some arguments early on, doc, Dr. Furholden, that if we built some herd immunity, we might be able to protect a larger portion of the state. Quite frankly, we didn't build it because we did the, the right thing by shutting down. But you're saying that some of the spike, what might be contributing to the spike is the fact that we did really well at first, and then we opened up and we had a whole lot of people that could actually be curious, that could get the virus. Yeah, yeah but I the one thing I will say about herd immunity is the mistake that people have about that. Herd immunity is a cornerstone concept of public health. Herd immunity is not about people getting sick, crossing our fingers that they don't get really sick, end up hospitalized or even worse, die, and that they then develop some natural immunity that they can then be out in the community. Herd immunity is about preventing people from getting sick in the first place. The ideal way to get to herd immunity is through vaccine-induced immunity, not through people getting sick and, and hopefully, you know, being okay and, and that way. The other thing that we didn't know that we know now, because we're starting to see recurrent cases and we're just learning a lot about this virus as time goes on, is that the immunity that people get from recovering from uh, COVID doesn't seem to last as long as the immunity that people are getting from being vaccinated. And that is, COVID is not the only disease where that is the case. So the vaccine-induced immunity tends to be longer. So this notion of herd immunity and getting there from nat from infection and recovery is not one that I think we should be resting our head on. The goal is to prevent people from getting sick in the first place. What is herd immunity? Like for herd immunity, for I mean, I'll say public health for dummies, for me. What is herd immunity? What is, I've heard it thrown around so many times, but no one said, Isaiah, in your language, this is what herd immunity is. Yeah, a synonym is community immunity, okay? So herd, we are the herd. Humans are the herd. You can also call it community immunity. What that means is a significant number of proportion of the population are not at risk for infection, such that the likelihood of somebody who's at risk coming in contact with somebody who's infection becomes really, really low. So the whole herd is protected because a significant enough, enough proportion of the herd is not at risk, right? So if you think about it, if you've got you know, one out of every seven or eight people who is, is not immune, the likelihood of one of those people who's not immune coming in contact with somebody else who's not immune, who's also actively infectious, 
starts to get really, really, really low. It's playing the odds. It's not a perfect scenario, but we know what that sweet spot or that tipping point looks like for most diseases. For COVID, it looks like it's minimally going to be 70%. And I would venture to guess it's probably going to be more on the order of 85%. Uh, and so, and I'm going to get to, to, to Dr. Moore in just a second, because he's hosting one of three in-city, actually one of four. I think there's one of three faith sites in the county right now that is doing this work, and then one of very few in the city that's doing it. So um, talk to me a little bit about the number of people that we know have been vaccinated and how we get toward that 70, 80% number. So Dr. Deborah, if you start there, and then we'll go to Dr. Moore to tell us a bit about who he's seeing at his site. Me tell you about you, who you, you've seen at his site? No, no, no. You tell me about the number. You gave me a number recently, the number yeah. of folks that have been vaccinated in the state of Michigan. And, and so that uh, number might help us to kind of push toward who he's seeing. If you don't mind, I'm going to start with um, Genesee County, but I always just go right to the, um, the website. And I encourage people, if you want to have this information, almost every county health department now, even small ones, have stood up COVID data dashboards. And we have a really robust one uh, in Genesee County. So as of right now, we have vaccinated in Genesee County. Oh, sorry. Come back to me, go to Pastor Moore and then I'll give you the big picture. Sorry yeah, about so I'll tell you, I'll come back to you, but also if you can give us the site, that way we can throw it up. That will be perfect if people can actually check that information out for themselves. Part of this is really informing yep. people with the access to information and resources. So Dr. Moore, who are you seeing? Well, we started out seeing the older people because that's what where the numbers were, 65 and up, then 60 and up and that sort of thing. So I don't know uh, the number in Genesee County, Dr. Furhoden is gonna give you that. We have actually vaccinated a little over 5,000 people at our faith clinic. Uh, but what, uh, and, and I'll let others address what I'm getting ready to say, what's disturbing me now is uh, when April 5th, when uh, everyone became eligible, our numbers have actually gone down. So we're not seeing as many younger people as we were the older people. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, last two weeks ago, we registered about 600 people. Last week, we were down to 400. And um, this week, it's starting out really slow also. So uh, that's what we're seeing. We were seeing a lot of people when the, when the age limit was high. And now we're not seeing so much, uh, so many. And I tell you, some of it, I, I'm not going to make any assumptions about why, because we got docs on here that actually yeah. do that all the time. And so, doc, Dr. EJ, um, why would you suggest we're seeing lower numbers of folks get in to get vaccinated? I think that I think it's twofold. I think you know, to some extent, we've also expanded our offerings of vaccines, right? We've expanded expanded places where people can go to get vaccinated. As Dr. Moore alluded to, places across the state have opened up so everyone can have access, and that means more places are distributing the vaccine. So, uh, you know, to see a few institutions see their numbers decline in terms of registration might be made up by a lot of people getting it done elsewhere in the community, right? But the other part is there's there is often this thought around some young people that they might not need to be vaccinated, that if they get COVID, it's not going to be as serious among them. Um, and so I do think we have to be really thoughtful about engaging our younger population and making sure they understand how important it is for them to get vaccinated as well. So I'll tell you, I've heard several, several things, right? I've heard it's set up for our older population, our most vulnerable population first. It makes sense, right? And then I heard later, well, young people are thinking we can't get it or we're not as light, we can fight it off, we can make it through it, our symptoms will be lighter. I've also heard pregnant women should not. And today we have Dr. Omari Young on, and I would love for you to just talk a bit about that. We get that question every time. Should pregnant women get the vaccine? Which one should they get? Does it matter? Um, shed some light on that for us, Dr. Young. I think that is a good point that's contributing to the decline in the number of vac younger generation of people getting vaccinated because a large number of reproductive age women who are contemplating, contemplating pregnancy or are currently pregnant um, are concerned about the vaccine, um, particularly with reproductive age women worried about 
infertility. And then women who are currently pregnant, their concern is um, poor pregnancy outcomes, whether it be uh, miscarriages or uh, birth defects. And again, those are valid concerns because the rightfully so those initial trials um, from the three pharmaceutical companies did not include pregnant women. Um, but we've made a clear statement by ACOG, which is American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, um, and the CDC and the World Health Organization have made a clear statement that based on the information we know about the pharmacology of this vaccine and the past vaccines that we give to reproductive age women and pregnant women, that there aren't any um, increased morbidity to uh, women who aren't pregnant. So we fully recommend um, the two vaccines, the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine. As you know, recently in the news, the Johnson & Johnson was paused in the U.S. Um, due to a rare clotting disorder that it did occur in six women. But again, in the broad scale of it, it is still very rare. But again, that adds to uh, the vaccination hesitancy uh, for women. Um, but we've made it clear that it is totally safe um, for women. Um, and particularly after you get the vaccine, the CDC has set up a vaccine tracker and they're developing a pregnancy registry where they're in, uh, enrolling women currently. And they've been enrolling women since February. Um, and they're going to do a check in in each trimester in the postpartum period. And then also a three month period that follows um, outcomes, particularly miscarriage, stillbirth, uh, miscarriage and among other um, morbidity outcomes. And the, right now, the preliminary data shows that there's no increased risk for pregnant women as compared to non-pregnant women. All right, thanks. So I'm, I'm glad you brought up the Johnson & Johnson because I'm going to ask a question. Before asking the question, I'm going to throw my sincere ignorance on the table again. Let's make sure it's clear for everyone that I am not a medical professional. Um, but the number that I keep hearing is six cases, not in any way making light of the severity of those six cases, but I've heard six cases of 7 million Johnson & Johnson kind of vaccines that have been given to folks. Is that is that a sign of our country's commitment to really doing the right thing by pulling this, by pausing it, by doing additional research on it? Or is that such a big deal that we have no choice but to? I mean, we really just needed to. So where, where does that lean? Are we super cautious about our vaccines? Six out of 7 million would seem that that's either really, really a big deal or it's really not. And I don't know where to land it as a, as a common man. I think it's a couple fronts. Um, I think pausing it gives us an opportunity to see if there are any specific characteristics to the individuals who um, had the reaction. And then also to advise clinicians on what to look out for. And then also with this specific type of clotting disorder, the treatment isn't standard as for other um, clotting disorders. So I think it is appropriate that they paused it to make sure that we're not uh, missing certain uh, patient populations who are at increased risk and also that uh, clinicians can accurately recognize those symptoms um, and then also provide the appropriate treatment. And then particularly for um, the general population and uh, pregnant women who've already received, because I've already been reached out by um, a pregnant women who've received the Johnson & Johnson, it sounds like the critical window is the 21 days after the um, injection. So pretty much you should just monitor your symptoms, contact your clinician, um, over those first 21 days after you receive the Johnson Johnson vaccine. But I'll leave it to Dr. EJ and Dr. Deborah Farhood to speak more on the public health um, standpoint. I would love to just point to something also that Hopkins put up. Um, they did a, a nice little infographic on the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. And it is six women under 50 who developed this rare blood clot. Um, the, the good news is like Dr. Young said, is they're actually doing the work to see if there's a, a causal link. Um, it's good news. It's good news that we're doing this. What we don't want this to do is reduce vaccine confidence. Um, I will tell you this, Dr. EJ can speak on the rate of blood clots among hospitalized COVID patients. This would be the equivalent, and Dr. EJ, I can't get the number of zeros right, but six out of almost 7 million is less than, I believe, 0. 0.00001%. Uh, and I'll let Dr. EJ tell us what that percentage is um, in the in the hospitalized population. So the goal here is, in the meantime, the good news is we don't have all of our eggs in that one basket. You know, we've got many different places, multiple vaccines that are safe and credible. And when people ask me what vaccine should I get, 
I tell them you should get the one that's available to you right now. That's the one that you should get. So people shouldn't be worried because of this. It's a good thing that we've got a vaccine reporting system, that this potential, you know, very small, but important, you know, if you're one of those six people, it's not trivial, but this is the system working, not the system not working. So Dr. EJ can tell you about what blood clot looks like in the uh, hospitalized uh, population. Yeah, so in people who have COVID, the rate of blood clot of any kind is somewhere between 18 and 20% which is in stark contrast to 0.00, however many zeros Dr. Verholden <laughs> mentioned. Um, but I, you know, I think the important piece is what everyone has alluded to, right? There are two main reasons we think about whether we need to pause. It is frequency of certain events, right? We're seeing a lot of side effects, which has not been the case across the board for all of the vaccines or severity of side effects. And that's kind of the factor that we're looking at here. In this case, this particular adverse reaction or issue is particularly severe enough for us to take note and be really thoughtful about how we can make sure our clinicians have the adequate protocols and our uh, people who are giving vaccinations have the adequate protocols. So this is just a pause, right? This is what do we need to do to make sure we keep everyone safe? All right. And so Dr. Dr. Deborah Ferholden, I'm going to bother you for a minute from the public health perspective. Here are lots of questions. So Blake Strozier said earlier, we need to talk about stigmas. We need to talk about the stigmas that exist. And I, I know you've been known to be the stigma buster. And so what are so give us three of those things that you've heard that you've had to debunk over and over again over the last year. Like people oh, say it, you immediately say, hold on, that is not true. This is where we are. That, that, that I can get the virus from the vaccine. That's just not true. You cannot get the virus from the vaccine. The virus does not contain, I mean, the vaccine does not contain the virus. You gotta talk about mRNA because I learned that and I think it's important to talk about right now. <laughs> yeah, so it's interesting because the ba- basically the vaccine has just a little piece of the instructions. The two that are out now, because we paused on Johnson & Johnson, So the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine have a little bit of the instructions. And that's what mRNA is, it's instructions on how to make the spike protein on the virus. It's just telling your body how to make that spike protein. Your body then makes that spike protein and the same spike protein that it makes, it then builds an immune response to it. So your body is actually doing all the work. Very similar to if you actually got the virus the whole viral molecule will come in, all of the mRNA. It's going to give your body the instructions to reproduce the whole molecule. We, we're just giving your body instructions on how to create that one piece. And the reason we picked the spike protein is it's the equivalent of the key. It's the key that unlocks your cell and lets the whole virus in. So we're trying to stop the key. We're trying to give your body a running start to recognize the key and stop it before it can get in your body and do any real damage. That's why the majority of people who get vaccinated will not even contract the disease. They might be exposed, but they won't contract the disease because they've had an already built-in immune response ready to knock it out as soon as it gets there. For people who are in those breakthrough cases, you know, the breakthrough where, you know, it, it 95% effectiveness means a 5% fail rate. And if we were talking about a parachute, I wouldn't want that. That we're not talking about a parachute. We're talking about medicine and medicine is not perfect. So there is an expected 5% fail rate. And so for those 5% of people, and maybe the number might be a little bit higher as we start to develop variants, people do still have some, you know, the key might come with a hat. So your body, it just might be able to do a little bit of work before your body's able to recognize it and fight it off. But it is way better than having nothing. So you're not getting so, so the virus me, from the vaccine. You're let me, don't go on to the second one yet. I want to talk. Don't talk. To, don't talk okay. about the second one yet. I want to get Dr. EJ in while you're in the mountains. I think um, you're, you were breaking yeah. up just a little bit. Dr. EJ, talk okay. to me about what my body's doing after that first shot and then after that second shot, because everyone has a different response. But understanding right. what's happening in my body is extremely important. Right. I think that is important, right? So that first shot is is your body making a very, you know, immediate response, right? That first shot is your body saying, okay, I've got the instructions. This is what this thing looks like. If I see it, this is 
what I should, you know, this is what I should expect a little bit. And it's kind of that immediate response. You, you make antibodies and you get ready to sort of fight this infection should you see it. We have something called short-term immunity and we have something called longer-term immunity. And that's basically your body says, okay, I need to make some cells that are gonna remember what this looks like. I can't just make the cells that are ready to fight this infection. I have to remember it the next time it comes along so that I can make the right antibodies and I can fight it. Should it come three months later, four months later, my short-term immunity has got me in the first three months, but I need something that's gonna remember what this looks like in three to six months, right? And so that's what we talk about when we talk about that first shot gives you sort of that early immunity, right? And gives your body some time to create a response and build that response that's gonna be longer term. That second shot helps you get your antibody levels back up while you're doing that work of making the long-term immunity. Okay, time out. So the, the, my body's response, so you insert this thing into my body, right? You insert this thing into my body. My body, the chills, the fever, the headache, all of that is part of my body responding to this foreign thing being in. It doesn't mean that I have COVID. It means that my body is responding to this thing that's been injected, no matter what it is. Is that what you're saying? Your body is making the response. Yep. Okay. That's helpful. Doc, Dr. Furholden, what was your second myth? I mean, myth buster, stigma buster. Tell me your second one. Um, the va vaccine is going to change my DNA. We get that a lot. And a lot of people are hesitant because they think it's going to change their DNA. And again, it has a little piece. And I know, you know, most of us, even if you heard mRNA or RNA back in, you know, middle school or high school, you probably don't really remember what it is. You might be a good trivia partner if you can, you know, actually spell out what RNA is. But most of us, you know, haven't dealt with these concepts since you know, we took some, you know, high school biology exam. And so, again, it doesn't change your DNA. mRNA, and this is why with the Pfizer vaccine, for example, has uh, this, this what we call cold chain storage um, conditions because mRNA in and of itself, all by itself, is not very stable. It wasn't designed to be, you know, roaming around in your body all on its own. You know, the hardest part about getting this, this vaccine you know, out. I think one of the hardest parts was figuring out how to stabilize it so it would it would it would withstand you know travel, storage, injection, and then making it to where it's supposed to make it inside of your body. So it's not even robust enough uh, to do the work, and it's not designed to change your body's DNA. So that is also a myth. The vaccine does not change your DNA. All right, give me three. I, oh. Oh, please, please add to that, doctor. I'm gonna, the only thing I'll add is I would say if you're concerned about the vaccine potentially changing your DNA, then you should be really concerned about coronavirus, right? Because coronavirus is an mRNA virus. When we make the vaccine, we, we, we make a very, very, very small portion that is similar to the spike protein that is already on the coronavirus that you encounter in the world, right? And that coronavirus is an mRNA virus. And there's no evidence, like we've already talked about, that it changes your DNA. But even if that is a worry, then the vaccine is much, much less, right? It's, it's even that tiny little protein. And, and that's, that's just not something that we're worried about. There's also this, this kind of, the mRNA technology with vaccines is a little bit new, right? This is the first vaccine that we've done. But mRNA technology is actually a lot older than what we're using now. It's been used in lots of different models of, of drug therapy, et cetera. This is the first vaccine that we've done, but the technology has been studied for a while. All right, Dr. Dr. Furholden, give me your third. Um, what's probably the biggest one that I, um, there's a lot of conspiracy theory around the, um, uh, the vaccine uh, and specifically around the virus. I think a good myth would be that this was um, engineered in a laboratory uh, and it got out of control. Um, and the reason I would say that that is a myth is one, I've seen nothing that would substantiate that this was engineered 
um, in a in a laboratory and taking my Dr. Deb hat off and just from good logic, if you were going to engineer something as a part of some world conspiracy, you would want to engineer something that wouldn't impact the very people in positions of power and authority. And I remind people that COVID has impacted everybody. The disproportionality that we saw early in the pandemic for black and brown communities, uh, for older people and people with um, uh, medical conditions had nothing to do with some, some targeting uh, by the government. It was because in fact, black and brown people and poor people were forced to be out more. Right. We did. They, if you don't have the kind of job where you can just switch over to Zoom and collect your same paycheck sitting at home on Zoom alongside your kids, you had to go out in the workforce and, and earn, a, earn a living. A lot of the exposure and the cases that we saw early on in the disproportionality was an exposure problem. They were at greater risk for exposure. Undocumented residents or, or residents, you know, to me, who are valid residents in this community, but don't have all the paperwork to substantiate it even more so because they're working in marketplaces where they don't have all the protections even of occupational workforce and in and, and myosha and all of the kinds of organizations that put those things in place. So I don't believe that this was some conspiracy. And if you notice, those who could, as soon as the vaccine was available, jump right to the front of the line. <laughs> in fact, the board can speak about that. People who can have and did jump right to the front of the line. So if this was some conspiracy to wipe out black and brown people, it it it, it doesn't it, it that just doesn't jive. Dr. Moore, you, you all did you all did jump in on Thursdays, right? At Shiloh, you were setting folks up. And at first you weren't managing the list. The list was being managed through the health department. They were actually making the calls and connecting with folks. Who were you seeing for those first couple of weeks? Well, actually, that's not the case, Isaiah. We yes. were managing the list. They started out uh, with a list for one day, but they allowed us to make the calls and make the list, and we were sending out the things. So we were seeing a lot of African-American people, like I said, it was the older people at first. So it, it, it gave me, because I was of the belief that a lot of African-American people did not want to get it. And when I started seeing them rolling in the shallow, I was like, no, that's not the case. Uh, so what was happening at the time, the reason why the clinic was put at Shiloh is because of the location in the heart of the African-American community, because people were not, black people were not going to Northwestern uh, for whatever reason. Um, and uh, that was a concern. So uh, they asked uh, us, would we do it? And we said, yes. And those same people in that area started rolling into Shiloh. So uh, that that that's how that happened. So I thought for sure, Dr. Furholden, one of your um, conspiracies or myths was going to be about brothers, right? Because the first thing I heard when this started to happen, and I've heard it over and over again afterwards, this can't be another Tuskegee. I'm just going to wait it out. I'm going to see what happens. So how often have you heard that and how have you responded? Yeah, I, I will admit that I think my colleagues made some critical mistakes in, in a, lot, a, a lot of steps along the way. The first, I think, was naming this Operation Warp Speed. I hear Warp Speed. I hear it went real fast. Maybe they cut some corners. Maybe they didn't do quite all the steps, you know, because they had to, you know, do it with Warp Speed. Um, and in fact, like Dr. EJ said, this technology is not brand new. mRNA vaccine technology is not new. It was already on the brink of coming out. It just so happens when you have an RNA-based virus and a pandemic coming together, people just got to understand this is going to be transformative for how quickly we are able to develop vaccines. Once you have the genetic uh, profile for the vaccine, you can develop a candidate vaccine within two to three days. It was literally a week. Now they can do it within two to three days. It's like you just need the genetic profile and then you can like you can literally have a vaccine in clinical trials in, in, in phase one in a week later. I mean, it's just, this is going to be transformative. So the notion that, um, you know, uh, black and brown people were saying, hold up, Tuskegee. I didn't hear that from people. As a matter of fact, my mentor, Tom Levis, did a study that predated COVID. Most black people had not heard of Tuskegee or really knew what it was before COVID. They didn't know. And he did his study before COVID. You would say Tuskegee and people would talk about the Tuskegee Airmen. We, I feel like Tuskegee was a very racist narrative shoved down everybody's throats to further this 
notion that black people won't get over old stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's just simply not true. Most of the reluctance and the hesitancy black and brown people and most people independent of race had is because this is all brand new. People have a lot of valid questions and they want to get those questions answered before they do something that, you know, we're saying is going to do them more good than harm. They want some assurance for that. You know, so and in fact, uh, now that we look at the polls, it's clear yeah. the highest hesitancy is in Republican 46% of them said, no, nah, not me. So I think it's a, a redirect to not deal with the fact that we still, despite mass uh, eligibility, have not been able to equitably get the shots in the arms of all the black and brown people who said, I do want the vaccine. So, so I had a real quick question, and it's going to pivot us a bit, a bit, a bit. As I begin to go to the questions, they're going to pivot or jumping around, jump around a bit. Dr. Young, Dr. Moore, just so you know, um, I'm going to tie two, T. T Lee and John Hagens Jr. T. Lee said, "So where did this come from?" Dr. Earlier, Dr. Furholden, you said some of this stuff isn't substantiated. There's lots of claims that aren't substantiated. One was that it was created in a lab. So her follow-up question was, "Where did it come from?" But assuming it came from somewhere outside of the country, the follow-up question is truth or myth. Other countries abroad are in a better place than the U.S. with COVID-19. And if so, why? Yeah, so, so the knowledge is that it came from a bat population. And that is not uncommon. It is not uncommon that we see diseases in humans that then get translated or transferred or transmitted to animals. And it is also not uncommon that diseases that are in animals get transmitted to humans. Now, the difference is some diseases that don't impact animals at all, like Lyme disease, have a terrible Im uh, impact and effect in the human population. So this whole area of One Health and the intersection of humans and animals in our environment is not a new one. And this is far from the first time that we've seen diseases cross human and animal populations. What a bat could just live with is causing and wreaking havoc in our, in our community. And it's not that big of a leap. So that is the origin as we've been told. And again, there's some data and science to back that up. What I don't have is data or science to back up it was engineered in the lab. It doesn't even make sense from a logical perspective because it's hitting the wrong people for that to have been the case. I think the other part of that though, right, is I mean, this COVID Goldilocks us, right? Like we have SARS before COVID, we have Ebola before that, right? So we have a history of coronaviruses wiping out and being very destructive for communities. This particular sort of uh, COVID virus, this coronavirus happens to be just sort of infectious enough, just sort of, um, Contagious. morbid enough it causes just enough mortality that we have a national pandemic but i i would say this doesn't come from nowhere right and this is this goes back to how we got to vaccines so quickly part of it is because we were doing this data we were doing this work on sars on the sars virus that happened and mers was the other one not ebola i'm sorry sars and mers yeah. are two examples of coronaviruses that have come from animal populations and that we've worked on to develop the vaccines that we now have. And so they're not, they're not new. All right, so, so follow-up question and someone says it here. So why did it spread so fast? Why was this one so different than all of the other coronaviruses that you described earlier? It had two chances. I mean, that's really, and I'm kind of joking, but that, that's really it, right? It had two chances to get this wrong or right. SARS and MERS were were incredibly deathly, right? Like their death tolls, they wiped out communities. This is just this this hit a middle ground, right? It killed a lot of people, but a lot of people, you know, had some morbid side effects. It was infectious. It it kind of anyone who came in contact with this coronavirus was able to spread it. It had two chances of figuring out this sweet spot. For turning into a pandemic and that's epidemiologically how these develop and there is a question about why the vaccine is not fda approved um I, that, that's the question in the chat i just dr deborah Furholden, could you respond to that well so 
the, I want to be real clear. The emergency use authorization is because we are in a pandemic, right? It would be the same if we identified a, uh, a, a drug that, you know, proved highly effective in clinical trials for some, um, uh, you know, special type of cancer that had a high mortality rate, right? It's also like, in a way you can think of it as like a compassionate use. So we have something that works. It's been vetted. And the emergency use authorization, it cuts mustard. It's been approved by a data safe and monitoring board. Mm -hmm. the, the benefit and the value have been demonstrated. And we needed it on the market and in communities right now. So that's why we have an emergency use authorization, which is like, in a way, a form of FDA approved. Uh, like, it's like a kind of like a clearance from the FDA. So we're in a pandemic. We're, we're in a pandemic. So, so I'll tell you, and I'll, this is me inviting other folks to maybe be sincerely ignorant with me. Um, <laughs> so don't laugh at this next question. But um, Dr. Moore and doc, Dr. Young, you all are having one-to-one -one intimate conversations with patients or parishioners every day about something that you know about, some stuff about, but you don't know everything about. How are you informing them to get the best information to make decisions for them and for their families? Like, how are you informing them to go about engaging in questions like the one that Shard has a question here. If it's been around for this long, for this many years, is there any research about the origin of how fam this family of viruses came to be over those many years and how they're so infectious? That's not a question that if I had a one-to-one -one conversation with someone that I could answer. And I'm gonna actually throw that one to Dr. Deborah just after we come out of here. But how are you managing those intimate one-to-one -one conversations? Do you two are having them daily as a part of your work? I think as a, a physician and a clinician, just broadly, even not specific to COVID, any, there's, there are no 100% or absolutes in healthcare and medicine. So every decision we make as far as recommending a medication, a surgery, or some sort of intervention, it's risk versus benefits. And as Dr. Deborah Furholden said, the risk we know for COVID-19 disease are great. We're in a pandemic. And particularly for me as an obstetrician and gynecologist, we know very well that the disease can be particularly severe in uh, pregnant women and then furthermore, pregnant women with comorbidities of um, African-American race. So I'm letting them know that we very well know the outcomes of doing nothing. You could potentially get very se severe disease, hospitalization, ICU admission on a ventilator, and potentially be fatal uh, versus the alternative. And again, obviously there, this is something new, novel, information always are gonna be coming out new, but it's our job as a clinician is to be transparent. We don't know everything, but I know the information I have available says that the vaccine is currently effective and safe. Those are the two major things I wanna to relate to my patients that is an effective and safe intervention and preventing severe disease and allowing you to have a quality of life that you want and not potentially end up in the hospital or in the morgue. No, mm. thank you for that. And then Dr. Moore, you know, when it, when it gets tough, I'm gonna talk to my family and I'm gonna talk to my pastor and I'm hoping he's got an answer from on high for me. So what, what, what answer are you gonna give us today? Well, the answer is always, first of all, trust God. Uh, you have to pray. And you have to trust God. But then um, beyond that, it always becomes a question of faith, a question of trust in uh, medicine and all like that. Jesus said it's the sick that need a physician. Um, in Isaiah, there's a scripture that where Isaiah told the uh, priest to take fig leaves and make oil ointment for Hezekiah. God does heal through science. So I, you know, people always say, well, I just need a miracle. I'm just going to trust God. And, you have the whole um, uh, evangelical community. I heard on the radio today, 21% of them are preaching against the vaccines and things like that. And so our people, they come back to us and they, well, what am I supposed to do? And I tell them, trust God, but listen to the science. Trust the doctor. We've all gone to doctors all of our lives and we have trusted them with our lives for all of our lives. If your doctor is telling you to take the vaccine, then don't get your answer from social media. Trust your doctor, trust the science. 
And so those are really the best answers that we could give them. Trust God first, be prayerful. Everybody has to be convicted in their own mind. But beyond that, trust the people who are experts in that area. If you need an attorney, you go get a lawyer. If you need medical advice, you go to the doctor. This is a health uh, issue. Trust the people who are experts in that field. Thank you so much, Dr. Moore. So, um, Dr. Deborah, if you want to take that question that we had before, and then if you could jump into this question, I mean, I would like Dr. EJ to jump into this question about what these blood clots with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, what that means for the rest of the population of folks that took the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So beyond um, women who actually fit in that, I actually, I don't know. I'm not going to ask that question. I'm going to read it the way it is here. What does these blood clots mean for other people who have gotten vaccine Johnson & Johnson? that something a ton of people are going to have to worry about down the line. So you had two questions here. The earlier one that came from Shard and then this one right here about bullet clots. Well, I missed Shard's question. Shard's earlier question was about if we've known about this for this many years, um, why is it all of a sudden that it's actually being active and, and pushed out into the community? This is talking about coronaviruses in general. Yeah, because this is, this is, I believe it's SARS-CoV-2, right, Dr. EJ? That's yeah. what this one is specifically labeled. This is not, this is this particular strain of SARS. SARS is the common cold. It's the same family of viruses, but it's a different virus. So, you know, th this is what we're really trying to, to stop right now with the variants um, that we're seeing show up. As these viruses change, and as new strains of them become prevalent, we, they're, they're different. You know, and you gotta think of viruses, main goal is to survive. Like they, they, they just wanna survive and they need hosts to be able to survive. So we haven't known about this strain of coronavirus. This is new to us. This is something that emerged in 2019, but SAR, the family of coronaviruses are not new. Um, to science or to the human population. But this particular strain is new. All right, thank you. And Dr. EJ, if you want to jump into this question about blood clots, I think Dr. Young touched it earlier, um, but if you could actually jump in and Dr. Young, you can jump in on the answer to that question as well. Yeah, I think Dr. Young covered this really well. I think he talked about this idea that blood clots for um, the risk in the population of people appears to be really, really small right now. We're seeing six and 6.8, almost 7 million people. Um, and so the pause that we're seeing right now is in an effort to make sure that we can adequately and appropriately monitor and treat patients should they need to be. Um, and, and more will come, but as of right now, it, it still looks like a viable vaccine that has some opportunity and that there's a really small risk associated with it. And the pause is to identify the people who might be at risk for this potential outcome. And the, the specific diagnosis, it's called vaccine-induced thrombotic thrombocytopenia. And we have information on that type of disorder already. Um, when you give blood thinner um, heparin, you can have a, what is basically an immune reaction so it's a combination of developing blood clots, but also you get a low platelet count. So that's why pausing it because its potential severity is great. And then also the treatment is very specific. So that's why even though it was only six cases and millions of vaccination administration, the severity and the treatment is unique. All right. And so you remember this, Dr. Dr. EJ. Um, there was a question the last time we were on about whether or not T. Lee should actually get the second shot provided she got COVID in between shots. And then there is a follow up question about what information are doctors armed with to offer information about the side effects that a particular patient might have as a result of taking the vaccine at any given time. So thank you for bringing this question back up. So the the general consensus, right, is as long as you are feeling better post a COVID diagnosis, that you are okay to kind of resume your 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 COVID vaccine series, unless you received, you know, antibody treatment for COVID. And then that's a situation in which you need to be talking to your clinician about what your next steps should be. Um, there's a lot of data after antibody treatment you should be waiting because we 
Um, for several reasons, we, we don't know what antibody treatment, how that might interact with vaccines, as well as after a COVID infection, you have a certain amount of natural immunity. So it's prudent, it makes us feel better. We, can, we know we can say, okay, wait, you've already had COVID, you have about three months of natural immunity, let's just be safe and wait for you to get your next series of vaccinations or your, your COVID vaccinations. Um, but otherwise, this sort of general recommendation is once you're feeling better after COVID, if you have not gotten antibody treatment, you are fine to resume getting COVID vaccines. All right. And I think that speaks towards too is the vaccine is not a panacea. So you don't get the vaccine and then walk out the next day and be in, unmasked in a large group of people. You still need those safety measures. Yep. All right, Dr. Furholden, you want to throw in the Swiss cheese model here? You, you got it. Multiple layers. <laughs> Look at it. Yes. There is no panacea here. This is perfect. All of these layers of protection. I want to remind everybody, whether you're in Flint, Michigan, or whether you're in New Zealand, we flattened the curve in most places in the absence of a vaccine. The vaccine was supposed to add this additional and last important critical layer of protection that was gonna tip the scales for us to bring this thing to a close. The problem is we stopped doing some of the other layers. We had a lull and a gap in government messaging and financial support. We've had gaps in different places in contact uh, tracing and testing. People have stopped wearing masks and, st and states have dropped mask mandates. These personal responsibilities and shared responsibilities need to be happening at the same time. No one layer is perfect but combined they build a wall of protection between the virus and the world. And we need all of those layers operating at the same time. Now, if you're already having clotting, is, pro um, is it okay to take this shot still? Doc Dr. EJ, Dr. Young? So this is, I think if you have an existing sort of medical condition, this is a conversation you should be having directly with your clinician, right? We, part of the reason Johnson and Johnson was paused is because we've seen some of those side effects. There's not been a specific sort of criteria that we've been given that says you are not that, you know, and any given individual is ineligible for the vaccine other than what we've talked about earlier. But certainly you should be talking to your clinician about specific sort of medical conditions that you have. All right, so second question about vaccines, just there, there's a question about if there's anything else we can do. Is there anything else we can do in this moment to protect us against, not only about the vaccine, but quite frankly about this whole allergic reaction to anything. Dr. Dr. Furholden, you introduced this idea of the family of SARS or the family of coronaviruses, if you will, right? What, what can we be doing beyond that Swiss cheese model, the multiple layers improved success model? What could we be doing beyond that to prevent spread and to be safer? And I think this question also talks about the allergic reactions that exist as a result of the vaccine. So what else can we do to prevent some of those reactions that the body might have? This, is, this underscores to me right now the importance of having a primary healthcare provider. If you didn't know before you came into the pandemic, everybody needs a Dr. EJ. Dr. EJ is a family medicine physician. If you don't have health insurance, now is the time to get it. The rebates and discounts for affordable care actually now make affordable care highly affordable for people. There were a lot of people who said affordable care, they couldn't swing it. Six, $700 a month wasn't in the cards. Uh-oh, I think my signal's going out. Can you hear me? Yes. Can you hear me? Yeah. All right, well, um, okay, great. If you are 400%, you can be over 400% of the federal poverty level right now and get affordable care for $10 a month. If you don't have health insurance, call your local health plan. In Genesee County, it's the Genesee Health Plan. If you don't have a primary health care physician, reach out to your local federally qualified health center, FQHC. They will see you if you are insured or uninsured. A lot of these questions that people have, I don't care if you were the best doctor on the planet, shouldn't be giving you, you know, catch-all medical advice. These are the types of things that you need to be negotiating and navigating with a healthcare provider. 
who is your partner in managing your health, understands your health history, where you can sit down and explain what other allergic reactions you've had in the past, what other adverse vaccine reactions you've had in the past. You've got to have a primary health care provider. If you didn't know it before COVID, you, you know now. Everybody needs that. Since you brought that up, are there any natural remedies? Now, I hear your first advice is that we should be talking to our primary care physician and we should have one. But are there any natural remedies that we should be going to beyond the vaccine? I don't think there are treat. Oh, go ahead. Wear a mask. Wash your hands. I had a pediatrician tell me, like, we're not saying wash our hands enough. So everybody wash your hands. In addition to all of that, make sure you're washing your hands. Um, there aren't natural remedies, but I would, I mean, this is the point of making sure you're working with your primary care provider a lot, right? We certainly see worse outcomes from COVID in people who have chronic health conditions that are uncontrolled, right? And theoretically, if you're you're working with your primary care physician, you have the opportunity to make sure all of your health conditions are controlled. You have you have the opportunity to make sure your vitamin D isn't low, for example, or that your diabetes is well controlled or your hypertension is well controlled. So I think the preventative care is making sure you're healthy. All right, we've got about four minutes left and I'm gonna be respectful of all of your time because I want you to answer the phone when I call you. So we're gonna make sure that we're respecting time here. I got one last question and I want Dr. Furholden to take it in this. After that, I want you all to just offer a couple of minutes uh, of closing comments, just recommendations that you will offer our listening audience to kind of take heed. Um, the, the question is, I came across some news about a third dose. Is that specific to any one particular virus? I mean, one particular vaccine, or is that something that we should be looking forward to overall? What we think is coming is that people are going to need a booster. Like, we just think a booster is what's going to be predictable. Right now, it is the Pfizer and the Moderna are a two-dose vaccine. Our big push is to get those two doses into the arms of every person who wants it and to get as much of our community vaccinated as possible. So we will keep updating. But what people need to be thinking about is this will likely be something in the world that will look like a, a seasonal vaccine. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. All right. Before we jump into that, I got two quick questions, and I think you can take them. Um, the first one is the spreading is happening in schools and that fear is that it will cross over into athletics, high school and college. Is this something athletes need to seriously worry about? Yes. And it's already mm -hmm. happened. So this, this is this. It's past tense. It's already happened and it's still happening. Absolutely. We actually think that's a big part of the spread is school a part of the athletics. Spread. Part, yes. Right. Yes. Should they fear not playing the sport? No, they shouldn't fear not playing the sport. They shouldn't be playing sports right now. It's not safe. We're in a pandemic and it's too much. It's the people in the crowds. I mean, give me a break. People go there, they take their masks down, they pull them down, they're yelling, they're screaming, they're hooping, they're hollering, they're cheering for their kids. I don't want any kid to miss their shot or to not have the opportunity to, you know, showcase their talents and all that. But we're in the midst of a pandemic. So these sporting events are greatly contributing to spread. The data show that. That's not my opinion. All right. Dr. EJ, Dr. Young, does the coronavirus feed on the amount of mucus we have in our bodies? Go ahead, Dr. Young. <laughs> no, it's, it's, a, it's a respiratory virus and it's transmitted by respiratory droplets. That's, that's, that's all I have to say for that. All right. Is there anything a COVID-19 survivor can do to shake the fatigue? I think we're learning I think is the short answer. Yeah. This is why we want to prevent people from getting COVID. I think we're long you know, I think yeah, I think we're learning that there's a lot of rehab that's going on in patients who have had um, severe COVID nineteen that required uh, ICU admission, they had to be on a ventilator. So that recovery process has been longer than expected. And also we finding out as we're getting more data and learning more about the virus, a lot of chronic illnesses are uh, becoming more apparent too following. So we're still learning about that. And I'll tell you, um, not a COVID survivor, but a survivor of the second shot I am this weekend. And I got some recommendations. Now, nobody told me to take Tylenol, take two Tylenol before, and then take two, no more than 500 milligrams within four to eight hours. 
They didn't say Tylenol. They said a different word that I can't say out loud. So I'm going to say to you all. Yeah, say that word again. Acetaminophen. Yes. Take that. If you're if you're getting your second shot, take that. Say it again, Dr. Young. Acetaminophen. Tylenol. Acetaminophen, for I, Jesus' sake. Tylenol because then it looks like you all are sponsoring Tylenol. Then you get but, um, I took two Tylenol just before. I took two Tylenol eight hours later, and then I took two Tylenol again eight hours later. And I had Isaiah, Tylenol uh, is the brand. I think you're reversing what you mean to be doing. You should oh. be saying acetaminophen, which is the medicine. You're brand promoting right now. And you said Tylenol about 8,000 times. Hey, I can, I'm not a medical professional. I can say Tylenol. They can't. Oh, okay. Right? okay. It, I'm yeah. doing this right. So I took Tylenol and I'm telling you it worked. I don't know what other acetaminophens are out there, but that one is the one I took. And, and that is in the CDC recommendations. So that is pretty standard. If you experience uh, fever or flu-like symptoms, they recommend taking Tylenol. <laughs> doc, you should tell the other doctor. <laughs> oh, I wish I could talk about him right now, but I cannot. I hey, just a round of, first of all, I just want to thank you all for spending time with us. We got folks that are seeing doctors every day. We got a person who's had 20 years thinking about public health and how it impacts us in a number of ways. And we've got a faith leader who is doing far more than your traditional faith leader, thinking about what happens with his parishioners, we're really taking care of our marginalized community. And so just leave us with your last thoughts. I'm, I'm doing the hands thing again, Dr. Dr. Trevor, and put them behind my back. Um, we're gonna start with Dr. Moore, we'll go with Dr. Young, then we'll go to Dr. EJ. I know she'll drop us with some Marie Joy, Joy. And then, uh, and then we'll go to Dr. Carolyn. I'm not answering his out. phone calls anymore. Watch. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I, I'll just share the faith, um, the sites for vaccinations. Uh, there are three faith sites. Shiloh Baptist Church is on Thursday. Central Church of the Nazarene is on Wednesday. Our Lady Guadalupe is on Friday. I don't have all the phone numbers, but Shiloh's number is 810-785-6271. Now here's the thing, if you call either one of those sites, we can schedule you for any of the other sites, any of the other health department sites. So if you call a site that has Moderna and you want Pfizer, we can look that up, we can schedule where you want to go. So get the vaccine. All right, um, so I've been vaccinated myself, I'm doing well, um, and then for my patient population, the COVID-19 vaccine is safe and effective for uh, pregnant and reproductive age women. Um, we recommend it for you all. If you have specific questions related to those uh, patient populations, go to ACOG.org, so www.acog.org. That's the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. And we have a sp specific area for COVID-19 related issues in the pregnant population and lactating women. Um, and then also for local information, go to the um, Genesee County Health Department or the Michigan Health Department website for general information. And then like Dr. Deborah Forholden said, if you have specific questions related to your individual health issues, see a physician. And I guess I I'll say see a primary care physician, see your primary care doc. Um, number two, get vaccinated if you can. Number three, we're in a surge. So even if you are vaccinated, stay home and or wear a mask and socially distance and wash your hands. Awesome. If anybody has, by the way, any adverse events, somebody made a comment about, you know, maybe people are having things and they don't know. You know, if you're having any kind of symptoms of a blood clot or any kind of health condition, seek out medical care. This is what I call the collateral damage of COVID. People are suffering with emerging and chronic health conditions at home. Don't do that. Seek out health care. Continue your preventive and primary care um, services during this time. And I want to bust my last uh, myth, which is that Flint is off the charts. You know, it's so bad in Flint. This is what the data looks like um, if you break it down for Genesee County. If you look at the actual numbers, Flint would be at the top in the highest number of cases. But that's because Flint has the biggest population of all of the municipalities in Genesee County. Flint is actually ranked ninth in rate, meaning the number of cases relative to the population. We are behind Linden, Fenton, Argentine, Grand Blanc Township, the city of Grand Blanc, Mount Morris Township, Atlas, and Gaines Township. 
So it is a myth that there's something magically horrible or bad about Flint. It doesn't mean that we don't want to do everything that we can to prevent spread. We do. I just wanted to put it all in context. So for the folks that are doing the right thing, masking up, washing your hands, you know, watching your distance, continue to do that. The last thing I'll say is for the people who do choose to get the vaccine, you will be the best trusted incredible messenger to the people in your family, the people in your church, the people at your job, right? I get the jokes, hey, did you grow an extra eye or did your arm fall off? And ha ha ha, no, that didn't happen. And a lot of times people follow it up with very real questions. I'm afraid, I can't afford to miss a day from work. You know, did you, did you have any problems afterwards? And I tell them honestly, no, I didn't. My daughter had a headache. She said her arm hurt. She took two Tylenol, that went away. 24 hours later, she was fine. You are the best credible messenger in your world, in your affinity group, in your family. So for those that are, yes, don't delay. You know, people like Pastor Moore have done a tremendous job. They've opened the doors to the church. They, you know, put all their time and attention and talent out on the line. Um, we need this layer of protection, but we will not vaccinate our way out of this pandemic. Make no mistake about that. We need all those other layers happening at the same time. Thank you. Take, take opening the doors of the church, literally and figuratively these days, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I just I want to take a moment just to thank Doc, Dr. Moore for all of his contributions and all of his help. His lovely wife, First Lady, has just posted, and I'm going to read it as my closing comments. Please call Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church of Flint at 810-785-6271. Again, 810-785-6271 if you're interested or you know someone interested in the vaccine. They can get you scheduled for this week, 16 plus, 16 to 17, 18 plus. Please give them a call if you are interested. I wanna thank you, Pastor Moore. Thank you, Dr. Young. Thank you, Dr. EJ. Thank you, Dr. Carolyn. You all are amazing. And I'm looking forward to talking to you again because I didn't say it this time, Dr. EJ, so that means you're gonna answer my call. Love you all, enjoy. <laughs> enjoy the rest of your evening. <laughs> Thanks, Isaiah. Thank you for having this.